Volume Two, Chapter Twenty Six of the Marble Fawn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore in Aroostook County, Maine. The Marble Fawn by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Volume Two, Chapter Twenty Six. The Pedigree of Montebeni. From the old butler, whom he found to be a very gracious and affable personage, Kenyon soon learned many curious particulars about the family history and hereditary peculiarities of the Counts of Montebeni. There was a pedigree, the later portion of which, that is to say, for a little more than a thousand years, a genealogist would have found delight in tracing out link by link and authenticating by records and documentary evidences. It would have been as difficult, however, to follow up the stream of Donatello's ancestry to its dim source, as travellers have found it to reach the mysterious fountains of the Nile, and far beyond the region of definite and demonstrable fact, a romancer might have strayed into a region of old poetry, where the rich soil, so long uncultivated and untrodden, had lapsed into nearly its primeval state of wilderness. Among those antique paths, now overgrown with tangled and riotous vegetation, the wanderer must needs follow his own guidance, and arrive no whither at last. The race of Montebeni, beyond a doubt, was one of the oldest in Italy, where families appear to survive at least, if not to flourish, on their half-decayed roots, oftener than in England or France. It came down in a broad track from the Middle Ages, but at epochs anterior to those, it was distinctly visible, in the gloom of the period, before chivalry put forth its flower, and further still, we are almost afraid to say, it was seen though with a fainter and wavering course, in the early morn of Christendom, when the Roman Empire had hardly begun to show symptoms of decline. At that venerable distance, the heralds gave up the lineage in despair. But where written record left the genealogy of Mount Beni, tradition took it up, and carried it, without dread or shame, beyond the imperial ages, into the times of the Roman Republic. Beyond those again, into the epoch of kingly rule nor even so remotely among the mossy centuries did it pause, but strayed onward into that grey antiquity of which there is no token left, save its cavernous tombs and a few bronzes, and some quaintly wrought ornaments of gold, and gems with mystic figures and inscriptions. There or thereabouts, the line was supposed to have had its origin in the sylvan life of Etruria, where Italy was yet guiltless of Rome. Of course, as we regret to say, the earlier and very much the larger portion of this respectable descent, and the same is true of many briefer pedigrees, must be looked upon as altogether mythical. Still, it threw a romantic interest around the unquestionable antiquity of the Montebeni family, and over that tract of their own vines and fig trees, beneath the shade of which they had unquestionably dwelt for immemorial ages. And there they had laid the foundations of their tower, so long ago that one half of its height was said to be sunken under the surface and to hide subterranean chambers which once were cheerful with the olden sunshine one story or myth that had mixed itself up with their mouldy genealogy interested the sculptor by its wild and perhaps grotesque yet not unfascinating peculiarity he caught at it the more eagerly as it afforded a shadowy and whimsical semblance of explanation for the likeness which he, with Miriam and Hilda, had seen or fancied, between Donatello 
and the fawn of Praxiteles. The Montebeni family, as this legend averred, drew their origin from the Pelasgic race, who peopled Italy in times that may be called prehistoric. It was the same noble breed of men, of Asiatic birth, that settled in Greece, the same happy and poetic kindred who dwelt in Arcadia, and whether they ever lived such life or not, enriched the world with dreams, at least, and fables, lovely, if unsubstantial, of a golden age. In those delicious times, when deities and demigods appeared familiarly on earth, mingling with its inhabitants as friend with friend, when nymphs, satyrs, and the whole train of classic faith or fable hardly took pains to hide themselves in the primeval woods, at that auspicious period the lineage of Montebeni had its rise. Its progenitor was a being not altogether human, yet partaking so largely of the gentlest human qualities as to be neither awful nor shocking to the imagination. A sylvan creature, native among the woods, had loved a mortal maiden, and, perhaps by kindness and the subtle courtesies which love might teach to his simplicity, or possibly by a ruder wooing, had won her to his haunts. In due time he gained her womanly affection, and making their bridal bower, for aught we know, in the hollow of a great tree, the pair spent a happy wedded life in that ancient neighborhood where now stood Donatello's tower. From this union sprang a vigorous progeny that took its place unquestioned among human families. In that age, however, and long afterwards, it showed the ineffaceable lineaments of its wild paternity. It was a pleasant and kindly race of men, but capable of savage fierceness, and never quite restrainable within the trammels of social law. They were strong, active, genial, cheerful as the sunshine, passionate as the tornado. Their lives were rendered blissful by an unsought harmony with nature. But as centuries passed away, the fawn's wild blood had necessarily been attempered with constant intermixtures from the more ordinary streams of human life. It lost many of its original qualities, and served, for the most part, only to bestow an unconquerable vigor which kept the family from extinction and enabled them to make their own part good throughout the perils and rude emergencies of their interminable descent. In the constant wars with which Italy was plagued, by the dissensions of her petty states and republics, there was a demand for native hardihood. The successive members of the Montebeni family showed valor and policy enough, at all events, to keep their hereditary possessions out of the clutch of grasping neighbors, and probably differed very little from the other feudal barons with whom they fought and feasted. Such a degree of conformity with the manners of the generations through which it survived, must have been essential to the prolonged continuance of the race. It is well known, however, that any hereditary peculiarity, as a supernumerary finger, or an anomalous shape of feature like the Austrian lip, is wont to show itself in a family after a very wayward fashion. It skips at its own pleasure along the line, and latent for half a century or so, crops out again in a great-grandson. And thus it was said, from a period beyond memory or record, there had ever and anon been a descendant of the Montebenis bearing nearly all the characteristics that were attributed to the original founder of the race. Some traditions even went so far as to enumerate the ears, covered with a delicate fur and shaped like a pointed leaf among the proofs of authentic descent which were seen in these favored individuals. 
we appreciate the beauty of such tokens of a nearer kindred to the great family of nature than other mortals bear but it would be idle to ask credit for a statement which might be deemed to partake so largely of the grotesque but it was indisputable that once in a century or oftener a son of mount Abeni gathered into himself the scattered qualities of his race and reproduced the character that had been assigned to it from immemorial times beautiful strong brave kindly sincere of honest impulses and endowed with simple tastes and the love of homely pleasures he was believed to possess gifts by which he could associate himself with the wild things of the forests and with the fowls of the air and could feel a sympathy even with the trees among which it was his joy to dwell on the other hand there were deficiencies both of intellect and heart and especially as it seemed in the development of the higher portion of man's nature these defects were less perceptible in early youth but showed themselves more strongly with advancing age when as the animal spirits settled down upon a lower level the representative of the montebenis was apt to become sensual addicted to gross pleasures heavy unsympathizing and insulated with the narrow limits of a surly selfishness a similar change indeed is no more than what we constantly observe to take place in persons who are not careful to substitute other graces for those which they inevitably lose along with the quick sensibility and joyous vivacity of youth at worst the reigning count of montebeni as his hair grew white was still a jolly old fellow over his flask of wine the wine that bacchus himself was fabled to have taught his sylvan ancestor how to express and from what choicest grapes which would ripen only in a certain divinely favoured portion of the montebeni vineyard the family be it observed were both proud and ashamed of these legends but whatever part of them they might consent to incorporate into their ancestral history they steadily repudiated all that referred to their one distinctive feature the pointed and furry ears in a great many years past no sober credence had been yielded to the mythical portion of the pedigree it might however be considered as typifying some such assemblage of qualities in this case chiefly remarkable for their simplicity and naturalness as when they reappear in successive generations constitute what we call family character the sculptor found moreover on the evidence of some old portraits that the physical features of the race had long been similar to what he now saw them in donatello with accumulating years it is true the montebeni face had a tendency to look grim and savage and in two or three instances the family pictures glared at the spectator in the eyes like some surly animal that had lost its good humour when it outlived its playfulness the young count accorded his guest full liberty to investigate the personal annals of these pictured worthies as well as all the rest of his progenitors and ample materials were at hand in many chests of worm-eaten papers and yellow parchments that had been gathering into larger and dustier piles ever since the dark ages but to confess the truth the information afforded by these musty documents was so much more prosaic than what kenyon acquired from tomaso's legends that even the superior authenticity of the former could not reconcile him to its dullness what especially delighted the sculptor was the analogy between donatello's character as he himself knew it and those peculiar traits which the old butler's narrative assumed to have been long hereditary in the race he was amused at finding too that not only tommaso 
but the peasantry of the estate and neighboring village recognized his friend as a genuine Montebeni of the original type. They seemed to cherish a great affection for the young Count, and were full of stories about his sportive childhood, how he had played among the little rustics, and been at once the wildest and the sweetest of them all, and how in his very infancy he had plunged into the deep pools of the streamlets and never been drowned, and had clambered to the topmost branches of tall trees without ever breaking his neck. No such mischance could happen to the sylvan child, because handling all the elements of nature so fearlessly and freely, nothing had either the power or the will to do him harm. He grew up, said these humble friends, the playmate not only of all mortal kind, but of creatures of the woods, although when Kenyon pressed them for some particulars of this latter mode of companionship, they could remember little more than a few anecdotes of a pet fox which used to growl and snap at everybody save Donatello himself. But they enlarged, and never were weary of the theme, upon the blithesome effects of Donatello's presence in his rosy childhood and budding youth. Their hovels had always glowed like sunshine when he entered them, so that, as the peasants expressed it, their young master had never darkened a doorway in his life. He was the soul of vintage festivals. While he was a mere infant, scarcely able to run alone, it had been the custom to make him tread the wine-press with his tender little feet, if it were only to crush one cluster of the grapes, and the grape-juice that gushed beneath his childish tread, be it ever so small in quantity, sufficed to impart a pleasant flavor to a whole cask of wine. The race of Montebeni, so these rustic chroniclers assured the sculptor, had possessed the gift from the oldest of old times of expressing good wine from ordinary grapes, and a ravishing liquor from the choice growth of their vineyard. In a word, as he listened to such tales as these, Kenyon could have imagined that the valleys and hillsides about him were a veritable Arcadia, and that Donatello was not merely a sylvan fawn, but the genial wine-god in his very person, making many allowances for the poetic fancies of Italian peasants, he set it down for fact, that his friend, in a simple way, and among rustic folks, had been an exceedingly delightful fellow in his younger days. But the contadini sometimes added, shaking their heads and sighing, that the young count was sadly changed since he went to Rome. The village girls now missed the merry smile with which he used to greet them. The sculptor inquired of his good friend Tommaso whether he too had noticed the shadow which was said to have recently fallen over Donatello's life. "'Ah, yes, signore,' answered the old butler. "'It is even so, since he came back from that wicked and miserable city. The world has grown either too evil or else too wise and sad, for such men as the old counts of Montebene used to be. His very first taste of it, as you see, has changed and spoilt my poor young lord. There had not been a single count in the family these hundred years or more who was so true a Montebene of the antique stamp as this poor signorino, and now it brings the tears into my eyes to hear him sighing over a cup of sunshine. Ah, it is a sad world now. Then you think there was a merrier world once? asked Kenyon. Surely, signore, said Tommaso, a merrier world, and merrier counts of Montebene to live in it. Such tales of them as I have heard, when I was a child on my grandfather's knee. The good old man remembered a lord of Montebene, at least he had heard of such a one, though I will not make oath upon the holy crucifix that my grandsire lived in his time. 
who used to go into the woods and call pretty damsels out of the fountains and out of the trunks of the old trees. That merry lord was known to dance with them a whole long summer afternoon. When shall we see such frolics in our days? Not soon, I am afraid, acquiesced the sculptor. You are right, excellent Tommaso. The world is sadder now. And in truth, while our friend smiled at these wild fables, he sighed in the same breath, to think how the once genial earth produces in every successive generation fewer flowers than used to gladden the preceding ones. Not that the modes and seeming possibilities of human enjoyment are rarer in our refined and softened era. On the contrary, they never before were nearly so abundant. But that mankind are getting so far beyond the childhood of their race that they scorn to be happy any longer. A simple and joyous character can find no place for itself among the sage and sombre figures that would put his unsophisticated cheerfulness to shame. The entire system of man's affairs, as at present established, is built up purposely to exclude the careless and happy soul. The very children would upbraid the wretched individual who should endeavour to take life and the world as what we might naturally suppose them meant for, a place and opportunity for enjoyment. It is the iron rule in our day to require an object and a purpose in life. It makes us all parts of a complicated scheme of progress, which can only result in our arrival at a colder and drearier region than we were born in. It insists upon everybody's adding somewhat, a mite perhaps, but earned by incessant effort, to an accumulated pile of usefulness, of which the only use will be to burden our posterity with even heavier thoughts and more inordinate labor than our own. No life now wanders like an unfettered stream. There is a mill-wheel for the tiniest rivulet to turn. We go all wrong by too strenuous a resolution to go all right. Therefore it was. So at least the sculptor thought, although partly suspicious of Donatello's darker misfortune, that the young Count found it impossible nowadays to be what his forefathers had been. He could not live their healthy life of animal spirits, in their sympathy with nature, and brotherhood with all that breathed around them. Nature in beast, fowl, and tree, and earth, flood, and sky, is what it was of old, but sin, care, and self-consciousness have set the human portion of the world askew, and thus the simplest character is ever the soonest to go astray. At any rate, Tommaso, said Kenyon, doing his best to comfort the old man, let us hope that your young lord will still enjoy himself at vintage time. By the aspect of the vineyard, I judge that this will be a famous year for the golden wine of Montebene. As long as your grapes produce that admirable liquor, sad as you think the world, neither the Count nor his guests will quite forget to smile. Ah, signore, rejoined the butler with a sigh, but he scarcely wets his lips with the sunny juice. There is yet another hope, observed Kenyon. The young Count may fall in love and bring home a fair and laughing wife to chase the gloom out of yonder old frescoed saloon. Do you think he could do a better thing, my good Tommaso? Maybe not, signore, said the sage butler, looking earnestly at him and maybe not a worse. The sculptor fancied that the good old man had it partly in his mind to make some remark, or communicate some fact, which on second thoughts he resolved to keep concealed in his own breast. He now took his departure cellarward, shaking his white head and muttering to himself, and did not reappear till dinner-time, when he favoured Kenyon, 
whom he had taken far into his good graces, with a choicer flask of sunshine than had yet blessed his palate. To say the truth, this golden wine was no unnecessary ingredient towards making the life of Montebeni palatable. It seemed a pity that Donatello did not drink a little more of it, and go jollily to bed at least, even if he should awake, with an accession of darker melancholy the next morning. Nevertheless, there was no lack of outward means for leading an agreeable life in the old villa. Wandering musicians haunted the precincts of Montebeni, where they seemed to claim a prescriptive right. They made the lawn and shrubbery tuneful with the sound of fiddle, harp, and flute, and now and then with the tangled squeaking of a bagpipe. Improvisatory, likewise came and told tales of recited verses to the contadini, among whom Kenyon was often an auditor, after their day's work in the vineyard. Jugglers, too, obtained permission to do feats of magic in the hall, where they set even the sage Tommaso and Stella, Girolamo and the peasant girls from the farmhouse, all of a broad grin, between merriment and wonder. These good people got food and lodging for their pleasant pains, and some of the small wine of Tuscany, and a reasonable handful of the Grand Duke's copper coin, to keep up the hospitable renown of Montebeni. But very seldom had they the young Count as a listener or a spectator. There were sometimes dances by moonlight on the lawn, but never since he came from Rome did Donatello's presence deepen the blushes of the pretty contadinas, or his footstep weary out the most agile partner or competitor, as once it was sure to do. Paupers, for this kind of vermin, infested the house of Montebeni, worse than any other spot in beggar-haunted Italy, stood beneath all the windows, making loud supplication, or even establishing themselves on the marble steps of the grand entrance. They ate and drank and filled their bags and pocketed the little money that was given them, and went forth on their devious ways, showering blessings, innumerable on the mansion and its lord, and on the souls of his deceased forefathers, who had always been just such simpletons as to be compassionate to beggary. But in spite of their favorable prayers, by which Italian philanthropists set great store, a cloud seemed to hang over these once Arcadian precincts and to be darkest around the summit of the tower where Donatello was wont to sit and brood. End of chapter 26 of volume 2